Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, tonight, we're delighted to present Katie Orphan in conversation with Lisa Jacobs. Um, <laughs> Lisa is the author of Catalina and the Worst Kind of Want, and her essays and short fiction have appeared in The Rumpus, The Los Angeles Review of Books, Literary Hub, The Millions, and The Hairpin, among other publications. Um, and here to introduce Katie in her wonderful book is Colleen Dunn-Bates, publisher, uh, editor, and founder of Prospect Park Books. Please give a warm welcome to Colleen. Thank you. Thank you, Mary, for having us. We always love being here. So I just wanted to give you guys a little um, uh, background on this, on this book. Um, this is something I've wanted to do for years, something like this, and I, probably my whole life. <clears throat> I grew up on Vermont, right up the street here, and... Um, used to walk down Vermont barefoot to the Hillhurst Library when it was on Hillhurst. And uh, I'm a sixth generation Angelino, and um, nothing pisses me off more than the cliche about LA. You all know what it is, and the New York Times writes something about it about every six weeks. And there was a tipping point in 2018 where um, there was another one of those um, you know, New York Times stories about how we're all juicing and, and, um, and nobody can read more than, uh, more than a, a, a TV pilot length. And um, the, the writer Elena Shatkin wrote a really hilarious takedown for LAist about, about that. And that was when the switch flipped and I thought, okay, it's time. It's time to do a book about the book culture in LA. So... I've been thinking about it for a long time, and I sent out emails to a few uh, trusted people in the book world here to get their opinions. And one of them was the, at the time, uh, general manager of, of the last bookstore, Katie Orphan. And I was hearing back from people saying, oh, it's a great idea, you should do it, you should do it. Uh, and I think, I believe including Mary here at, at Skylight. And Katie said, uh, oh my God, um, my agent was just about to send you a proposal for a book just like that. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, because uh, I had thought this is something we would kind of do in-house. So we, this was just kismet. We sat down and, and, and this is what happened, this book. So it was just luck and circumstance and timing that, that, connected, well, I already knew Katie, but that where this happened to be. So this became a true labor of love that Katie, you know, just went all out for this, and a whole bunch of us went all out for this. Um, uh, Amy Inouye, who's right over here, she's uh, the, the best book designer in California. She designed this book. She's amazing. It's such a visual treat. Uh, we had a whole editorial team, including Dory Bailey, who's right over there, uh, and, uh, uh, and um, some of us in the office, and, you know, there was, we had a, a photographer, we had, you know, editorial team, we had artist uh, Kate Wong, who did this, one of the fun, all the illustrations for the cover and inside, and um, uh, we didn't, the one thing I wanted to say is, I didn't sleep for weeks before we went to press, and neither did, I don't think you did either, Katie, and I know that uh, people in my office, Caitlin Keating didn't sleep, we were, there's so much in here, so terrified, who did we forget, what book did we get wrong, what did we spell wrong, what did, the thing that every editor worries about, and then the book, and, and I, we tried, we worked so hard, night and day, to make sure it was right. The book arrives, I look through, oh thank God, it's, it looks good, and then my uh, a, a good friend and one of my most beloved authors, Naomi Hirohara, who is featured in this book, comes by the office and points out a really bad mistake. So I'm acknowledging it. Usually we pretend they're not there. I'm acknowledging it. She is not, in fact, the author of Farewell to Manzanar. She's the <laughs> co-author of Life After Manzanar. So uh, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm owning up. I've never done this before. I'm owning up to the mistake because I want you all to know when you're reading this and you say, oh, how come they forgot so-and-so? Or how come they have this book? We did, we did, we worked so hard. We tried, this city has so much richness, so much literary depth and breadth, more than, more than anybody in New York thinks. And we couldn't get it all right. 
and uh, but we got it 98% right. So with I just wanted to kind of give you that background and introduce that. And with that, um, Katie is she's she's passionate about this. She loves this city. She loves these books. She loves the authors. And um, nothing has been more fun than working together on this. So here's Katie. Thanks. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my entire life. So thank you all for being here. Um, let me put my mic down. And then I'm going to take a picture of you all because this is literally the greatest moment of my life. So hold on. <laughs> Can people hold up? Do they have books? Anybody? Yeah, there we go. Yeah. yeah. That's true. <laughs> but I also have the 11, so I can zoom out. Ooh. <laughs> Thank you all. You're indulging me. <laughs> soak it in. I'm well, going to. I'll start then. Well, yeah, you soak yeah. it in. You get, you um, get us going. So how I know Katie is I worked at the last bookstore um, for a hot moment in, oh God, I think it was like eight years ago. We were trying to do the math before and we were like, no, just order more drinks. We won't, we won't count how many years ago it was. Um, and we both used to work in the bike counter. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where people come and bring their books and we buy them from you if we think that they'll sell and they're not dirty and disgusting. Um, and we used to talk about one day publishing our own books and here she is publishing her first book. Yeah. So really, give it up. Like this is a long, <laughs> this is a dream that she's had for a long time. I think she was even writing essays at the time about um, following in the footsteps of some of the sort of the big guns of Los Angeles authors that you think of when you think of LA authors at the time, um, which is a good yeah. place to start since we've already talked about the origin of this book. Yeah. Right? Do you want to read from it? Ooh. Well, yes, obviously. <laughs> uh, but I do also want to say, like, in addition to all of the things that were leading Colleen to writing this book. Yes, tell us um, your origin story, Katie. I, I will tell you a little <laughs> of my origin story. Um, I have always been a literary tourist. I didn't know what to call it when I was a kid, but you know, I would drag my mom places. When we went to New York, I insisted that we stay at the Algonquin because that's where Dorothy Parker drank. And when I <laughs> lived in England, we went to Haworth because that's where the Brontes lived. And I have always been passionate about like going to the places that the authors that I loved uh, had lived and were writing about. And then I went to college and had a professor for whom that was their academic specialty. She wrote about literary tourism uh, I, and went to conferences and did all of these things and opened my eyes. Um, and I had a, a wonderful collegiate experience in terms of sort of crystallizing my love for this specific thing. Um, and then I moved to LA uh, after a lifetime of loving it in part <laughs> due to Los Angeles literature. Um, I'm oh, doing boy. an event later with Francesca Leah Block, who uh, was one of my favorite authors growing up. And reading Wheatsey Bat at age 12, I was like, yeah, Los Angeles is the place I need to be. <laughs> like, that's where I will belong. Um, and so I moved to LA and I started working at a bookstore and a bookstore with a ton of tourist traffic and people would ask mm -hmm. for LA book recommendations. And I found myself reading more and more and more. Um, and then getting really frustrated that every time there was a literary tourism book that came out, the only thing they would talk about, if they talked about LA at all, was Raymond Chandler. And I love Chandler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> that ignores all of the other incredible literature of this city. Um, I think it's easy, as Colleen said, to, you know, people dismiss LA and think that it's all about film and television. And that's certainly a huge part of this city, but people have been writing novels and short stories mm -hmm. and plays for, you know, 
the better part of 200 years here. And yeah. so it's about time that we get to talk about it and celebrate it. So yeah, that's, that's how we got story. to here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there is a huge lore to Los Angeles literature. Like you do think of Raymond Chandler, you think of Joan Didion, you think of mm -hmm. John Fonte. So you have to cover that in the book, right? And yeah. I think the way that she did this was really smart. There's a lot of institutions in Los Angeles that are still around. Um, which sort of give us access to these people. Um, one of the places, a favorite of both of ours, is Musso and Frank. Um, yes, it's a favorite of many people, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and we all know that place, and we know it because it links us back to the past of Los Angeles, a sort of storied L.A. Um, and that's the part that I was hoping you'd read for us. And I'm ready. Oh, good. I, I posted it, guys. <laughs> I'm prepared for this. Musso and Frank Grill better known as Musso's, has been a Hollywood staple since 1919. It hasn't changed much since then, with its long-season staff in red-coated livery continuing to deliver flannel cakes, sand dabs, meunier, and the best martini in the city, by GQ's reckoning, the best in the country. Over the past century, Musso's has been a hangout for writers of the page and screen, including those who do both. Such greats of early 20th century American literature as F. Scott Fitzgerald, William Faulkner, John Steinbeck, and Ernest Hemingway found their way to the long-defunct back room, which was replaced by the new room in 1955. Their presence at Musso's paved the way for generations of writers to come who stocked out dark booths or spots at the long bar in the hope that some of the literary genius in Hollywood history would rub off. Many writers who have frequented Musso's have paid tribute to it in their work. Raymond Chandler sent Philip Marlowe there for dinner in The Long Goodbye. Charles Bukowski memorialized it in two novels, Hollywood and Pulp. Gore Vidal was such a regular that his memorial was held there in 2012. To this day, authors meet at Musso's for drinks with friends, drinks with agents, or drinks alone while they work on their writing or plot their revenge. As long as Musso's survives, that will continue. Pull up a bar stool, order a drink, take out a notebook and pen, and watch the world pass by in a fog of gin. Yes. And I, lo I love that about this book is that it's not your typical, you know, how it's set up that this is Raymond Chandler went here and he did this. You're able to profile Chateau Marmont, these other places. Um, do you have a favorite one that you profiled besides Musso and Frank? Um... Because I know you did Eve Babbitt's in Chateau Marmont, right? I know. So there's sort of like these combos that she was like very smartly was like, okay, Moose and Freight can be here. Joan Didion can be, you know, what did you do for that? The freeway? <laughs> I, I, I don't mean, remember. Yes. Among other places the for desert, Joan Didion, yeah. I definitely drove the 110-101 interchange that she made so key in Play It As It Lays. Yeah. Um, Musa's is one of my favorites. A, a lot of what I said in there is very reflective of my own experience of going down there in the afternoon and <laughs> reading a book and drinking a martini and then toddling home uh, on the metro because that's <laughs> the best way to travel to and from Musa's with the strength of their martinis. Um, but mm, I, maybe my favorite other place is the Huntington. Ah. Um, I love the Huntington. I became a member because I wanted to be able to go whenever I wanted. Um, but one of the things I love uh, is the fact that Octavia Butler's papers are there, Charles Bukowski's mm -hmm. papers are there, even non-LA authors, Dame Hilary Mantel mm -hmm. has her papers there. And so it is one of the most glorious resources in all of literary LA. Um, and on that note, I also, love the central library. Mm. I love every branch of the library. I have like four. That's covered in here too. Yeah. All I the libraries are covered. <laughs> Everything she's mentioned, it's, it's in yeah. here. I'm like, it I, looks slim, but it's packed to the brim. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I love the library in general. Um, I am famous in my hometown for the amount of <laughs> late finds I racked up. Um, but the central library has just incredible resources. I spent time with phone books mm -hmm. from the 1930s, tracking down where used booksellers were located on Spring Street because Fonte talks about them in Ask the Dust. Mm -hmm. And so to have access to these incredible primary sources um, 
I think my general nature as a researcher is coming through very strong right here, but I'm like, um, I can recognize Octavia Butler's handwriting. Um, (laughs) And I read 1920s phone books for fun. So uh, I'm a big fan of the libraries. (laughs) Well, also, I I mean, one of the things that you mentioned in the Musso essay is that as long as Musso survives, right? And I think this is sort of the antithesis of sort of living here and trying to trace these famous authors that have sort of defined Los Angeles for us is a lot of these places disappear, right? Like we can't, I mean, in the essay, you mentioned the new bar uh, mm-hmm. in Musso and Frank. So really it's it's sort of a different place than what it was for Fitzgerald or, yeah. or Hemingway. So is there places that are no longer there? Yes. And I knew you were going to ask <laughs> that. And so I came prepared. Um, it's like we talked beforehand. Yeah. I think... One of the things that was really vital to me and I think the whole team about doing this book is the number of places that have disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, Los Angeles is kind of infamous for tearing down its history and building over it and not really recognizing or acknowledging what used to be yeah. someplace. And so part of what we wanted to do here is capture the moment that we're in right now, but also help people find those places that have disappeared. Um, I brought an additional book with me because (laughs) I couldn't help myself. Um, (laughs) I will tell you, the place I am most obsessed with that no longer exists uh, is called The Garden of Allah. Have anyone heard, have yeah. you guys heard of this? Look anyone? at all you folks who know yeah, what I'm you talking know what this about. Is? Okay, but those yes. of you that don't, you're in for a treat. Yes. Um, it was a hotel on Sunset Boulevard. You know where um, like the Trader Joe's is, kind of like uh, Near Crescent the Heights, Heights, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yes, that used to be Maybe Schwab's. Schwab's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Michael. Again, Los Angeles is a palimpsest. Yeah. Um, but um, what is now a parking lot um, used to be this hotel founded by an actress whose name was Allah, hence the Garden of Allah. But it was the place to be. Um, it was mostly when? bungalows. This? this was the 20s, 30s, oh. into the 40s. Um, that That is where Fitzgerald stayed. That is where uh, Dorothy Parker stayed. That is where Errol Flynn was having his affairs with underage girls. Like, everything happened Scandal. at this hotel. Um, Babbitt's talks about it. In yeah, days, Babbitt's right? talks yeah. about it. Um, in part because after it got torn down, um, that lot became uh, like savings and loan. But there was a model of the hotel that was in the lobby mm-hmm. of the bank for years. And then the bank got torn down. And then it was a liquor store. And now it is literally just a parking lot. And the model disappeared, but kind of got, it resurfaced a few years ago in somebody's private collection. And if you know anybody who can help me see it in person, <laughs> please help me out there. Um, but it's, it's one of those places where I think about all the people who stayed there who have had cultural impact for the better part of a century. And, you know, LA does not have those big blue circles that London has to mark where somebody lived or where somebody worked or where somebody died. Um, we, we don't have that. It would be really great if we did. Yeah. Um, but one of my goals was to help people find those places that have been lost or those places that you might pass by all the time and not realize have this sort of significance. Like I lived two blocks from Joan Didion's old house mm. um, when I first moved to LA. And I didn't know until much later. And then I was like, are you kidding me? This whole time, I was two blocks from Joan Didion's. I mean, now it's like a spiritual center. um, But it's the house that she wrote about in the White Album. Um, And I was like, I I love that there is this rich, deep history. um, And it's terrible that so much of it has been ignored or erased or written over. So we wanted to capture some of that. And I feel like we have a, a very interesting connection having worked downtown together and seeing, I mean, when we started there, the park across the street from, you guys know what the last bookstore is, right? The park across the street from that was like an old tire yard or something it like was that? A, it was a parking was lot. That was a parking lot? Yeah. And I feel like it was just a garbage site. But, um, and then it turned <laughs> yeah. into a park. Um, and then very rapidly, uh, things around it started to change. Um, 
within a few years of uh, just me working there. And yeah. even after you left, it was still changing. And now I drive down there and I'm like, what is this place? I don't recognize it anymore. Yeah. Um, but the way you approached John Fonte, right, mm. who was sort of looking at downtown in a similar yeah. way, I think was a, a smart way of going about it. Did you, so would you go downtown at like to sort of follow in his footsteps? Did you try to? Yes. Um, with, with every chapter in the book about a classic LA author, yeah. um, most of whom, but not all of whom have passed away. There are a few of them who are alive, but might not live in Los Angeles anymore or are Aren't noted recluses. <laughs> um, uh, so with all of those, I, with everybody, I was like, yeah. I want to take field trips. Yeah, um, that's the best way to get to, to, yeah. to get access. So, you know, even though I would spend more than 40 hours a week downtown at work for John Fonte, like I went down on my days off and I walked the route that he took yeah. from the building he lived in um, on what is now Olive. Mm -hmm. um, if you know the like giant uh, retirement community buildings on Olive, like uh, kind of across from the Omni Hotel. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, that is where Bandini, uh, Arturo Bandini oh, from Ask the Dust lived um, before those buildings were there. There used to be like residential hotels that went down the side of Bunker Hill, um, like parallel to where Angel's Flight is. Uh, but yeah, I would walk his route. I would go to the library. Um, I would find places he went. Like I went and had beer at the King Eddie Saloon. Uh, <laughs> and you can too. <laughs> you can too. Um, but I mean, I, I was, a, I'm, I'm very like food and drink driven. So I was like, ooh, if you mentioned a restaurant or a bar in one of your books, I wanted to go there. Um, but it was true too of my interviews with living authors. Um, Michael Tolkien is here who I interviewed. Uh, and we went to the Grill on the Alley because it mm. is one of the locations in the player where characters go to have lunch. Yeah. Um, so it was really important to me to, as much as possible, step into the locations that people talked about to be able to describe what's there, describe what you might find now, mm -hmm. uh, describe what used to be there, mm -hmm. and hopefully make it come alive as much as possible. So how did you go about with your interviews with 11 authors. I'm one of the authors that's, that was interviewed in here, and we did, we were talking, Catalina was one that yeah. came out. And so we interviewed at the Miramar Hotel, um, which is where the book takes place, which makes sense for me. Yeah. Um, and then reading through all 11 interviews, because it spans the genres of all, Los Angeles, there's a lot of different types of writers here. We've got noir, we've got literary, we've got YA, we've got all kinds. And there's a a good representation in here. So talk a little bit about your interview techniques, please. Oh, good Lord. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was your, what were you thinking as you went into it? Cause I mean, you know, I, there's a different way with me who you know than um, Michael Connolly, who, you know, I'm yeah. sure you had to jump through some hoops to, to, to land that one. Uh, you know, <laughs> a, a few. <laughs> um, I, I will tell you it is as comfortable as I am with public speaking, I'm very shy about talking to people one-on-one -on -one who I don't already know. <laughs> so it, it was certainly a fun exercise in getting outside of my comfort zone. But, um, you know, I reached out to people that I knew and then I uh, would have them introduce me to other people as necessary. Um, and what kind of things did you guys talk about? What was sort of your philosophy going into yeah. it? Um, the things that I was really interested in, because we were talking so much about Los Angeles as a literary place, I wanted to know the influence that the city had mm -hmm. on what they wrote, on how they told stories, how important it was for them to capture the geography of the city, places yeah. that were essential to them. Um, and then to talk, too, about the broader literary community. One of my favorite things to talk about with the people I interviewed, and it came kind of as a surprise, but a really beautiful and pleasant one, um, was to talk about their literary community, mm. um, was to talk about, you know, maybe the readings they go to, the people who read their work, the yeah. people that they're in touch with. And one of the incredible things about a city this size is that there are all of these different pockets. I would talk to people like who had <laughs> mutual friends in common with some of the other people I was interviewing. And I would talk to people 
for whom their whole world full of other writers and creatives maybe didn't overlap as much. Um, but really talking about how the city and the people in it fueled their creative work um, and yeah. inspired them and, you know, gave Which them feedback. Which makes this very different from other sort of like guidebooks of Los Angeles because it's not just information of the past, right? It's sort of a catalog of what's happening now and not pretending like it's, it's not ongoing. There's mm -hmm. also... Um, different festivals that are listed, uh, different publishers that are listed yeah. also. Um, Colleen talked a little bit about how you guys were terrified about not, rep not having everybody represented in here. So can you talk a little bit about representation, <laughs> right? Because we don't, we, how do you have everybody represented in here? I mean, one of the things that I loved going through this book is that she, she you guys were very good about curating uh, about the women's building. So making mm -hmm. sure that it, you had a fair number of women and men represented in mm -hmm. the interviews, right? Um, also people of color, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, Colleen is not wrong. I still I know have you up so much anxiety about like, it up. <laughs> people that I know and care about who aren't necessarily in the book. Oh. And it like, I, you know, it, uh, it's fine, it's fine. Um, <laughs> that's what anti-anxiety medication is for, folks. But see, this is also um, a good way of having it be like volume one, yeah, right? Um, volume two. I can see this going buy on forever. It. Yeah, yeah, buy it, buy a bunch <laughs> of them, and then maybe Colleen will want to do a second volume because I have so much more material, and I think she does too. Well, there's a really interesting section in here that Mike does, right? Mike the poet, yeah. right? Sort yeah. of alt-reading, right? So like, you, they never do they pretend that this is the, the Bible, right? There's yeah. constantly references to other books that if you want to, more information about an alternative history of Los Angeles, here's another book for you to read. Yeah, right? yeah. And I will, to, to go back to your original question, it was very important to me as a woman yeah. that female writers were represented just as much as male. Um, I think yeah. especially when you tend to look at the literary canon. Especially for LA. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, just in, in, general. in general, we've got English degrees. We, yeah, know. we know. Like I know. It, we also worked it, at a bookstore. We know yeah, what's sold. I mean, <laughs> the canon in the West tends to skew to yeah. white men. Um, and there are a lot of incredible white male writers, and mm. I love a lot of them. Um, but it was really important to me, too, that women's voices were heard as well. Um, and as somebody who is biracial, it was really important to me that I represent people of color. Yeah. Um, and there are certainly a lot of challenges with that as well. Um, like, in terms of looking for Latinx authors, um, it is uh, a enduring issue that it's not that people are voiceless, it's that people in positions of power aren't giving people um, the platform to share their voice, which is to say, trying to find literature written by California authors in say the late 19th century is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. um, but you can find, say, white writers like oh. Helen Hunt Jackson, mm -hmm. who are, you know, who wrote Ramona about uh, a woman who was half indigenous, raised by a Mexican family on a rancho in Southern California. And she used her position of privilege to bring to light um, issues about you know, for communities that weren't given the opportunity re to represent themselves. But, um, you know, to, like, I thought about all of these things as I was looking. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it was so fortunate, like, I got, like, Luis Valdez, who is a contemporary playwright, you know, also has written plays about all different eras of the Mexican-American experience in California. And so even though it's contemporary work, we could still talk about what was happening as California became part of the mm -hmm. United States um, and what was happening to Mexicans who suddenly were no longer in Mexico, but were in the US. Yeah. Um, so all that to say, like, there were plenty of challenges. I'm, God, I would really love for there to be like 
Tongva literature mm. that's widely available. Um, but, uh, you know, I took advantage as much as possible of the rich variety. Yes. Um, yeah. And it, it wasn't just the, like, personal demographics of who was represented, but also looking at, like, genre representation. Um, my friend Amber, who is sick and could not make it tonight, is one of the people I interviewed, but she is still, as far as I know, the only person who's written fantasy that takes place in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. And so I wanted to not just touch on the noir, not just touch on the literary fiction, but also say, like, there's really fun genre stuff that can happen here. Yeah. Um, and so my hope is that, like, for readers, there is somebody or some genre or something that connects with them. Yeah. No, there definitely is. Okay, I think thanks. so. I mean, I've read through the whole thing. I mean, uh, one of the, the cool things about it, too, is it, it's very inclusive, right? And that's the nice thing about Los Angeles. I feel we've talked about this before, and even in our interview, is, is the idea that Los Angeles is constantly, yes, it's rebuilding itself, but part of that is because everybody that comes here should feel like they can be part of the literary community, too. Yeah. Um, and it's why you guys have not just book festivals and publishers listed here that are local. You also have um, writing workshops that are available. Um, so with all of that going on in this book, how in the world did you structure it? <laughs> um, I mean, Colleen mentions this a little bit in the foreword. Uh, we went back and forth on a lot of different ways to structure it. We talked about structuring it geographically, west side, <laughs> east side. We talked about structuring it chronologically. And then there was, I believe, at one point, a conversation about how the book would essentially go from black and white to color <laughs> because <laughs> all of the like images that we would have of authors of the early 20th century would all be in black and white. And we were like, you know what? Let's just yeah, essentially have... randomize it oh, wow. so that like, if, if you were maybe interested in one specific person or one specific thing, we can introduce you to other things, other authors that you might not have come there looking for. Um, mm. So it's very fun to me that, you know, you can read a chapter on Wanda Coleman and then, you know, a few pages later be reading a chapter about Luis Rodriguez. Although, to be fair, they're both poets, so I guess that's not the biggest juxtaposition I could have come up with, but, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, we were talking about this last time. We, were, we had, I think, breakfast, pancakes or something uh, last week, yeah. and I asked her, what have you learned from this? And she, her whole face went white. She was like, I'm writing an essay about that right now. I can't, I don't, I don't know. So, I'm, I'm curious now if you've found an answer. Having done all of this research, compiled all of this information, looked at Los Angeles and how diverse the community is, and you know how, how welcoming but also spread out the LA community is. I mean, my God, we literally are in a pandemic and this is a full house of people. Thank so you, like we are we New York likes to pretend they're, you know, they've got like lit communities down, but like, come on, this is incredible. Yeah. So what have you learned? What is what's the takeaway? I mean I have learned how little I know. <laughs> um, you know, I I carved out shelves on really? one of my bookcases just for the books that I read for this book. Wow. I I mean, before before Colleen and I connected and yeah. I got a contract, I had spent the better part of two years doing intensive reading and research and note-taking, mm -hmm. uh, which was helpful because I had four months, four months to yes, write the book. Yes, we didn't talk about didn't that. Talk yeah, about we that. should talk about oh, that. We yeah. did this book <laughs> so fast. Yeah. Um, I'd call her and be like, do you want coffee? And she'd be like, no. No. I'm busy. I work and then I come <laughs> home and then I do different work. It's great. Um, yes, she wrote this entire thing while working full time at the last bookstore. It's true. I did take two half days though, guys. <laughs> so She is human, folks. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's the most wonderful thing about Los Angeles literature is that, at least for me, it can be my life's work. It's not just a project that took, you know, three years, but the volume of things that are coming out, the number of events that happen mm -hmm. around town that I want to go to, um, and discovering authors who have kind of been forgotten by time. Yeah. Um, I really could spend the rest of my life reading books by Angelinos and about LA um, and never run out of reading material. 
Oh, uh, I love that. That's wonderful. Thanks. Now, what do you want them to take away from reading um, the book? You know, oh, oh, you didn't prep me for this one, Lisa. I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's something in here for everyone, right? Yeah. I, mean, I was I, listing off people who I could give this book to, and it was pretty much everyone I know. Thank you. Po mostly because um, there's a picture of me in it, so I'm there, like, it's like also is. a gift for you know. Yeah, it's and it's a lovely picture. <laughs> um, I mean, yes, obviously buy copies for everyone you know that's a great takeaway but um <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I mean my my hope is that you find someone or something or some place that you didn't know about before mm -hmm. that you discover an author that you'd never heard of whether it's in one of the longer features or in one of the sections we have a lot of lists of contemporary LA authors people who lived in LA, many of whom have since passed, but some of whom who have just moved out of the city. Um, you know, we have essential nonfiction and history and, yeah. you know, I am and always be, will be a bookseller at heart. So I'm <laughs> like, I want you to discover a new book or a new author that you want to read, yeah. go out and buy it from an indie bookstore, preferably. Woo. Um, but I also, you know, I would love to see people like taking field trips to the Huntington with an Octavia Butler novel in hand mm. or, you know, going, um, one of, one of my favorite things, like, uh, Ray Bradbury wrote, a like trilogy of, uh, light noir that take place in LA. Most, you know, if you read like the Martian Chronicles or Fahrenheit 451 in school, you probably know Bradbury lived here mm -hmm. um, and was a passionate Angelino, but um, he didn't write a ton about the city, but he wrote what I think are very fun books that are kind of his like loving homage to Chandler and Kane, but it's about a Venice that he knew mm -hmm. that has long since disappeared. Oh, it's yeah. when Venice was poor <laughs> and you read these things and you're like, tell me again about how people could afford real estate in <laughs> Venice. This is insane. That's um, the sci-fi part. <laughs> yeah. But you know, right. <laughs> um, but like the, the first one, um, death is a lonely business, uh, revolves around the closing and destruction of the Venice pier. Mm. Um, and hopefully in my book, you will figure out how to identify the remains of the Venice Pier if you're in Venice. But like, those are the things I get excited about. Like now, when I fly out of LAX, I almost always take a picture of what's left of the Venice Pier because I'm like, I know exactly what that pile of rocks is. <laughs> and I get really excited about it. So I'm hoping with this, you will also be able to see this city that I love and I hope you all love. Um, through some new lenses and start to spot things that have this sort of significance. Um, before we open up for questions, I want to, this has been a huge LA love fest, but there's also a section of quotes from authors <laughs> that hate LA. So I would just like her to read some choice quotes for you guys, just so we, we don't get our egos too large tonight. Uh -huh. Yeah. I have it marked too. Oh, good. Good. You do? I don't. Oh, yeah. I was, again, I wasn't prepared for that question. Here we go. Oh, you got it. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, oh, Faulkner, who came to LA to write scripts, took the money, put his name on some things, but basically, basically absconded. <laughs> like, let's be, like, he, he did not follow through on his contracts, but the studios got a boost by having his name on a script, so they still paid him. Uh, but he wrote... Everything in Los Angeles is too large, too loud, and usually banal in concept. The plastic asshole of the world. <laughs> um, oh, this is a good one from Chuck Klosterman. Oh, wait, I, what, tell us some, some good uh, info You know, I him. don't have dirt on Chuck oh, Klosterman. Damn, I'm sorry. Oh, and this is sorry. being recorded, too. I it is. Okay. And uh -huh. he's still alive, oh. unlike Faulkner. Okay, yeah. Uh, sorry. Nothing but love for of Chuck Klosterman, who is very right funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked by anyone who doesn't consider Los Angeles to be anything less than a bozo-saturated hellhole. <laughs> More. I love laughing at these idiots. Go. <laughs> oh, oh, 
Okay. I'm from here, so yeah. I, I and, and much I like Colleen, you're a multi generation Angelino. Okay, so Truman Capote, who <laughs> um, is partially buried in Los Angeles. <laughs> um, when he died, he hit. Hmm, there was there were some issues about who got his remains, and so his remains got divided between a couple friends, um, one of whom lived here, and so her portion of his ashes are interned uh, at Pierce Brothers in like Santa Monica. Like it's uh, not it's yeah it's Westwood. Don't worry, there's a list of cemeteries. It is, to visit and it's in, in there too. like yeah. And Pierce Brothers is crazy because it's basically hidden by all of these huge buildings, but loads of famous people are buried there. Um, so anyway, Truman Capote didn't die here, but is partially buried here. <laughs> and he said, it is redundant to die in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> more, more, more. <laughs> uh, um, I, you know, I feel like this is appropriate in our era of climate change. Oh, good. Uh, there was nothing wrong with Southern California that a rise in the ocean level wouldn't cure. Uh, and that's from Ross McDonald, who is one of the great L.A. noir writers. Uh, oh, man. Um, uh, well, I, and I, I'll, yeah, I'll read one more. This is from John Gregory Dunn, who you know, did live here for a long time before decamping to New York, New York with his wife. Yeah. And uh, they lived in Malibu, so they had it that's easy. That's true. I mean, well, you know. All right, go on. <laughs> and, you know, uh, they made plenty of money from screenwriting, and I definitely came with a tote bag with his wife's face on it yes. because I love her, so yeah, whatever. Yeah, who don't know, he's Joan Didion's <laughs> He's wife. Joan Didion's husband, late sorry. husband. Um, but he wrote this. Los Angeles is the least accessible and therefore the worst reported of American cities. It is not available to the walker in the city. There is no place where the natives gather. Distance obliterates unity and community. This inaccessibility means that the contemporary de Tocqueville on a layover between planes can define Los Angeles only in terms of his own culture shock, which I like as a final quote because I feel like a lot of the work of this book is to decimate yeah, that absolutely. perception. Yeah, because that also sounds like what Colleen was talking about, those New York Times that haven't changed their tune since he's been here, which was like in the 70s. Yeah. Um, and I think this book does that, so congratulations Thanks. Thanks. I'm going to give her a round of applause. Um, should we open it up for questions? Yeah. Questions? Yeah. Luis. Um, for the sake of the podcast, I'll repeat it into the microphone. Um, the question is, what is the biggest takeaway from all the research that I did? I mean, uh, among other things, was the realization that there was no way that I could put everything I wanted to in this book. Um, you know, the like I had written sample chapters as part of the proposal process. Um, and the amount of research and time and words that went into those sample chapters versus what we could fit in here. I was like, oh, there's so much I can't share with you. Like my, I, I had written an essay on Joan Didion. That was one of the first chapters I did. And I followed Mariah Wyeth, who's the main character of Play It As It Lays. She goes into the desert because her husband is filming a movie there. She goes to Las Vegas because she herself is from Nevada, um, which of course leads me to the question that perhaps every Nevadan who ends up in Los Angeles has asked themselves, which is why did nobody tell me to read this much earlier? But um, you know, I, I took a road trip, like I went uh, like out into the desert, like north of Baker, and I went to Las Vegas, and I went to the Hoover Dam. I drank in the same casinos she drank in. I stood on the Hoover Dam where she had stood. And there just wasn't room for all of that. Um, so it was a, a big process of determining like what gives you the broadest taste of what I have, but 
I mean, the stories I could tell, like, I guess, I mean, you're asking me to, but like, you know, <laughs> but you know, like I'm, uh, to, re to refer back to my Garden of Allah book that's hiding in my lap, like it was written by Sheila Graham, who uh, you might not recognize the name, but she was F. Scott Fitzgerald's girlfriend at the end of his life. Um, when he was living here, Zelda was in an institution. Sheila was his, by turns, secretary and girlfriend. She was with him and kind of taking care of him and his alcoholism and leading to his death. Um, but like, she's a fascinating person. She wrote a book called College of One about F. Scott Fitzgerald sort of giving her an education, like telling her what to read and helping her to learn and grow, and then she turns around and does plenty of other things on her own after his passing, including writing a very out of print book about this infamous hotel. And there are just so many people like that and a lot of historical fiction I would have liked to get to and yeah. Volume two. Yeah, volume two. Uh, but yeah, I mean, a lot of it was just that process of what is maybe the most interesting, what is the easiest thing for people to access, um, access, I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable there, um, but really trying to figure out like what makes the most engaging material, even though if I could, I would tell you way too much about everything. <laughs> Dan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but if you were assigned by your editor to go somewhere else, what town would you like to go to? Or country. Oh, okay. So uh, Dan's question is, um, while he would prefer for the next book to be another volume about Los Angeles, if I could go somewhere else, where would I go? Um, I will tell you, uh, I think about this a lot. I, I would really love to do a book on, like, the Mountain West slash Big Sky Country. Mm. Um, having grown up in Nevada, there isn't much available about the literature of my home state, and I think the same thing is true of Utah, Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, these like incredible Big Sky Country places that have led to incredible books, like you know Dennis Johnson, Claire V. Watkins, like sort of a lot of the like contemporary American Western, um, but I think it's a really kind of underexplored part of the country in terms of that kind of writing. And, um, you know, I would love an excuse to like go stay at my sister's house for a couple of weeks or more and write a book. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I could write about LA forever, but I would not mind writing a lot about, you know, Mark Twain in Virginia City and uh, probably Hunter S. Thompson in Las Vegas, but you know, there's some interesting research you'd have to yeah. do. <laughs> <laughs> to get in the mindset of I, that one. I'm not going to lie, I have a lot of notes on Hunter S. Thompson in Nevada. I'm ready. <laughs> oh, come on, guys. More questions? Any other questions? Bethany. Okay, so if I had to recommend to somebody three places to see in Los Angeles while visiting, stuff, because again, this is the bookseller in me, I want to ask people, like, what are the things you're interested in? Because I want to tailor that to you. I definitely had a friend visit, and I was like, oh, I'm going to take you sightseeing. Um, but what I meant by that was I was going to take you on a hike in Griffith Park so you could see the Hollywood sign and the observatory in the city. And she was like, yeah, you lied to me. This is not sightseeing. You made me hike. And I'm like, <laughs> lesson learned. Um, but, uh, gosh. Well, um, I mentioned the Huntington. Um, I think it's just this beautiful oasis and... Uh, being the person I am, I'm like, I get to go look at a Gutenberg Bible and a first folio Shakespeare with my own two eyes, an Audubon, like, <laughs> this is too much. And they have a bar there now. And Yeah, and they <laughs> have a bar. A you can they drink while you're there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm like you, everything's tailored to food and drink. Um, and I, I'm, I'm out 
outdoorsy enough, which is hilarious because I was an indoor kid growing up, but I'm not now. Uh, but I do, I mean, I love hiking around LA. Um, I like to recommend Griffith Park because it does give you that view of the city. You get close to the Hollywood sign, you see the observatory, but I also love Echo Mountain. Um, something about the ruins of the railway and the hotel that was at the top of the mountain just like feeds right into my love of forgotten Los Angeles. Um, I feel like I should say something on the west side. <laughs> Ouch. I know, I'm like, I just, I don't cross La Brea very often. Um. <laughs> Apple pan. That's, that's on the other side, right? That's true. Um, gosh, you know, maybe, maybe one of the like, older movie houses, like mm. going to something at the Egyptian, like an American Cinematheque uh, showing at the Egyptian. I mean, the Vista is my neighborhood theater and I love going there. Um, I haven't been to the Chinese much since it's been refurbished, but my friends who are say experts in like movie theater sound say it's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, being able, and of course on any of the nights when they're doing screenings at the old movie houses or movie palaces on Broadway and in the historic core of downtown to be able to go someplace where you can be like, oh, you know, Rosalind Russell had a movie premiere here. Like, yeah, yeah, that's a pretty sweet part of LA history. <laughs> yeah. One more question? Anything? Writing process? Okay, all right. Okay. Thank you, well, Katie. Yeah. Congratulations thank to you. Thanks. Um, thank you. Thank you all so much for coming out in this time of uh, medical alarm. I really appreciate you coming out and facing a Actually, crowd. Yeah. If you get um, this book, it would give you a great reading list of what to yeah, stock up on. Yeah. For you can quarantine. Yeah. It, you know. And you're in a bookstore. So yeah. A little, a little armchair travel. Yeah. Maybe pick this up and one of the authors mentioned in it. Um, as I mentioned, Michael Tolkien is here. My friend Andy Turan, whose book, Anna of California, is in the book. You, know, you could pick up their books while you're here. I'm just saying. <laughs> and me. Oh, and Liska, whose books, whose books are at the front with my book up at the counter. So lots of opportunity. Let's give her another round of applause. <laughs> Katie Orphan. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.